Hello and welcome to this special episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. At the end of the last episode, I told you that I would be chatting to a British conductor who'd already appeared on the podcast. In many ways, that is true, as this week I'll be chatting to Simon Halsey, the world-famous choral conductor, who appeared way back in episode 9. Where I misled you was that in fact, Simon will be interviewing me. Having seen Simon interviewing many famous conductors for a film on the Berlin Philharmonic Concert Hall website, I thought he'd be the perfect choice, as we've known each other for over 30 years now and have many things in common, as you'll hear through the course of the episode. The one thing you won't hear him asking is how I mark up a score. If you want to find out the answer to that, head over to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium, where you'll find an essay I have written on the subject with pictures showing you how I do it and my thoughts on it all. You can access this as well as two new sets of interviews, group Zoom meetings and bonus episodes attached to this series, all for a small monthly subscription which starts as low as £5 a month. Details are in the show notes below, as well as other ways you can financially support the podcast. So, it's on with the interview, and here is what happened immediately after I pressed record and Simon Halsey and I started chatting. I hope you enjoy it. Hello everybody, and welcome to Dave's... Oh shit, I'll start. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of A Mic on the Podium. My name is Simon Halsey. I'm the director of the CBSO Chorus and the London Symphony Chorus, and I featured on episode nine of this wonderful series. Today, I conduct a conversation with an English conductor who spent 22 years playing the violin professionally before becoming a conductor. He is associate conductor of the CBSO, has conducted virtually all of the orchestras in the United Kingdom, as well as many others internationally, and is now the host of a podcast where he interviews other conductors about their careers. So it's a pleasure to turn the tables and welcome Michael Seal. Mike, you've carved out a really interesting career trajectory. To the outsider, it looks like uh, you've had like two careers, a quite long one as an orchestral violinist, followed by a second life as a conductor. But I've been observing this from within the CBS though for about 30 years, and I know it's much more intertwined and complex than that. And so I was thinking, how should we go about talking about it? Because in a way, I'd love to begin in the middle of your career and then look about how it began. But actually, I think in your case, it's really important to understand where you began, how your first career took off, and at what point an interest in conducting began. So just tell me about how music entered your life in the first place. Well, um, I don't remember it being a particularly musical family. Nobody played any instruments and um, my parents have looked back a bit at family trees and there's some musicians appear about five generations ago. But it really didn't touch my life until I was nine. And I don't know whether you know about this test, but I was in primary school and one day the teacher said, we have a test. 
Um, and they played it on a LP, and basically you'd get three pitches, sort of bar, 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 and you would have to choose which one was the highest, or and then question B would be which one was the lowest, or and this lasted for about half an hour. And when you're nine years old, you just answer the test. You do as your teachers say. About oh, I don't know. Sometime a couple of weeks later, three of us had our names read out and said, "Could you please leave the class?" And we were introduced to a violin teacher. Um, a foreboding gentleman um, who I loved. Um, his name was Harry Horseman, and he was a violin teacher, a music teacher at the local secondary school. And basically, we'd, given, we'd got the top marks in the ear tests, and the question was, would I like to learn the violin? Well, you know, at the age of nine, other than wanting to be an England cricket captain, I thought, yeah, go for it. So I learned the fiddle. Um, and uh, we stayed in the northeast where this happened until I was 12, came south, um, learnt the violin a bit more, um, got into youth orchestras, uh, local one, Medway Youth Orchestra, and then eventually the county, Kent County Youth Orchestra, which is where orchestras, I think, became what I really loved. Um, I've worked out recently that actually the violin was just a vessel for being involved with an orchestra. It could have been anything. I just happened to be given the chance to play the violin. Um, it was orchestras I loved. Yes, I wonder if those tests were what, I think they were called the Bentley tests. They were well, that rings a bell. A man yeah. called Arnold Bentley at Reading University. And the only reason I can remember that is because I did them too. And yeah. uh, Arnold Bentley's son was in the same choir as me at primary school. Oh. So we oh, were cool. very aware of the Bentley tests. Yeah. Um, but also, like you, um, there was that thing at primary school, wasn't there, that in those days you could just be given an instrument. I mean, I clearly remember music lessons where the tables were put to the side of the dining hall and lots of instruments, probably in terrible condition, were put out there from tambourines to violins to old flutes and recorders and drums and things. And you were just told to go and take something that you, you fancied and mess about on it. That plus sort of singing a hymn in assembly and uh, a bit of music in the curriculum and teachers coming in to teach perhaps a very limited number of instruments. But it did mean that music was part of the everyday life, didn't it? It was. Uh, and, you know, thinking back and now you've sort of jogged my memory a bit in the fact that those lessons in uh, the county of Cleveland in northeast England, where, where I started when I was nine, those lessons were free. Uh, I was yeah. given the violin for free. I had free lessons up until the age of 12. And my parents didn't need to buy me a violin uh, until we left to come south because of my, my father's work um, until I was 12. And then lessons, uh, we had to, well, my parents had to pay for lessons when we got to Kent. But, you know, ensembles were still free. And we were, you know, I went to Chatham Grammar School for boys and we were still singing hymns in assembly. And I was expected to stand up, you know, once a term maybe and play something much to the um, my chagrin and much to the amusement of my fellow pupils or colleagues. And, um, but yeah, music was a lot more part of everybody's life than, than it, it is now. And, and the world's a worse place for that. Yes. Frankly. Now, what about youth orchestra? Because I bet, I mean, my memories of youth orchestra are, because I went to an all boys school. It was the first time I met girls. I remember the thrill of playing Mahler's first symphony, despite the fact I couldn't play the cello part at all. And it was just generally the camaraderie and going away for a few days that was, you know, like the highlights of my life. Yeah. Um, I mean, Medway Youth Orchestra 
Uh, I distinctly remember my first concert with them. The conductor had written a third violin part, you know, and I felt sort of ashamed that I wasn't good enough to play the second violin part of this simplified part. But worked my way through, and we did a, a couple of tours. I mean, I toured and, and we joined that orchestra in 1983, and we must have gone on tour not long afterwards to Valenciennes, which was a twin town of Chatham and Rochester. The big thing in Kent was to get into the County Youth Orchestra, and I auditioned on violin and didn't get in. And around this time, I started on the viola, uh, and completely hands up in the air, I learned the viola to get to two things: another grade eight, and to get into the County Youth Orchestra. Uh, and I achieved both, and I got into the County Youth Orchestra at the age of fifteen did one course on viola and then begged them to let me swap to violin, which they did. Um, and as a consequence, I believe I'll probably only, well, I, I probably will only be the, the only person ever to have sat on the back desk of the violas, the back desk of the seconds, the back desk of the first, led the orchestra and also conducted them, which I have done recently. Um, loved it. We went on tour to Brazil when I was 16 years old for two weeks, you know, absolutely unbelievable time. Um, and again, going back to the differences between the 1980s and the 2010s or 20s now, is that when I went back to Kent to conduct the Youth Orchestra, I asked them, well, so when's the next tour? And they said, oh, we haven't toured for years, um, partly because the people who hold the purse strings think it's, just, think it's a jolly for the teachers rather than a good experience for the kids. And, and you, if you're fighting that battle, well, then, you know, you're in big trouble. Um, one thing I have to say about youth orchestras, I got the best coaching in how to play in orchestras I ever got in the Kent County Youth Orchestra, down to a dear old gent called John Ludlow, who I think basically led all of the London orchestras and was a session player. And he taught us how to use the bow, bow distribution, what to listen to, so that when I got to music college, I was already doing things that other people weren't because I'd been taught this stuff. It was just unbelievable coaching. I, I knew John Ludlow. He was John Ludlow was at the front of the Guildford Philharmonic. At, yes, at the he was. Yeah. Many London orchestras. He's the sort of guy who would suddenly stand up and play the sort of Vaughan William, the big Vaughan Williams solo pieces on one three-hour rehearsal with an orchestra. An absolutely fantastic chap. Now, so you moved on from that. What sort of uh, was the pressure on you to go to college to do something other than music or was it clear you were going to music college? Oh, no, but my eggs were firmly in one basket, Simon. Um, and this comes to a tricky point of my life in the fact that a lot of people I knew, mainly through County Orchestra, had already gone to music college. I wanted to go to music college and do, I don't think you can do it now, um, a sort of, uh, I don't know what it would call, but it wasn't a degree. It was basically four years in a practice room. You didn't get a degree at the end of it, you got a, a diploma. I wanted to do that and I realised that I probably would be okay with my playing and as a consequence for a, a good 18 month period I was one of the worst school children you could ever imagine which ended up with me being excluded from that school and meant that I had to go and eventually thank God for somebody called Alan Vincent who was the conductor of the County Youth Orchestra. He got me into Tunbridge um, Sixth Form College and uh, what's important about this is that I auditioned in the winter for the, all of the colleges with a reference from my school. I didn't get into any of those music colleges 
I then did the late auditions in the March, and I auditioned for Trinity and for Birmingham with the Tunbridge Sixth Form College reference, and I changed my programme, and I got into both. Um, and for Trinity, I would have been first study violin and second study viola. And for Birmingham, I got in with a scholarship to do first study violin, second study composition, and third study viola if I fancied doing it. And Birmingham won. So I came to Birmingham and thought, well, maybe it would be a, a, a good idea to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond. Um, you know, there's only one college in Birmingham rather than five or six in London. So I thought I'd do that. And and I think it was probably the best decision I ever made, or we ever made. How fantastic. So tell me about the Conservatoire then. Well, I mean, for me, it was it was heaven. I got taught by Jackie Ross, who was the head of strings, and, um, and but also made, you know, my composition teacher was a lovely man called Andrew Downs, uh, who was wonderful. He just sort of, you know, guided you um, so wonderfully. And Jackie was... Jackie and I, you know, had our differences for the first year until we sort of twigged on a way of working together and the fact that I couldn't copy everything she did. You know, Jackie is about five foot two or three, if that, with tiny hands. And I'm six foot, six foot one with huge shovel hands. And I think eventually we sort of agreed that I would take from her things that I knew would fit to my body uh, and the, all of the general musical things, obviously. But, you know, th I would try and tailor what she wanted me to do to fit my my frame and do and, and it worked wonderfully. And it, basically from my second year to the end of my third year, um, my playing just leapt forwards in leaps and bounds. I wouldn't say I was a nice student because I was incredibly, what's the word? Um, <laughs> you could look back and think arrogant, but it wasn't arrogance. It was I was just single-minded about getting into an orchestra. It didn't matter what the where the orchestra was. My goal was to get everything and anything out of that place and go and get in an orchestra. Um, so I was yeah very single-minded. Probably not particularly nice. And you know I look back on part parts of that bit of my life and think what on earth were you doing? But you know I worked my ass off, frankly. And where did the where did the composition lead? I did I did a year. I had a couple of pieces um, performed. Uh, I was then swap teacher to Jean Joubert, who was a lovely, lovely man, brilliant teacher. But by then, this was starting my second year. As I said, my playing was starting to really take over, and I and I basically thought, you know, I haven't got the time. And the college allowed me, I mean, at the start of my second year, I became a joint first study, and within halfway through my second year, I dropped composition completely. The, the viola had already gone, and they basically said, fine, just be a violinist then. And so it disappeared. Um, I mean, it never totally disappeared. I, I had a piece performed in the late 1990s by some friends of mine that I'd written for them, and, and actually just before lockdown, I was really getting back into it again. But it, at that time, the violin was everything. All right, so violin's everything. You're studying, you're presumably in all sorts of college ensembles and orchestras and so on. We haven't heard anything about conducting yet, and I guess you're about 20 by now. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so the first time I conducted would have been to conduct a brass piece that I'd written for 13 brass and percussion. I went to, um, 
I think it was Chris Morley's shop in Moseley. I think it was at Cottage Music. He had a shop in Moseley. And I bought a baton, which, you know, uh, it was sort of bolt-like in size, a huge broomstick of a thing. And I conducted, and, and it was okay. I mean, I got, the, got them through the premiere of this piece I'd written. And then in my third year, there was a chance to do a year's course, which got you another piece of paper, another diploma, with Jonathan Del Mar uh, as the conducting teacher. And I enrolled in this class. And by then, Jonathan was conducting the symphony orchestra at the Conservatoire. It's worth me talking about the first time I met Jonathan. I'd been promoted to lead the symphony orchestra at the start of my third year. And Jonathan arrived, put his scores on the, on the music stand. And I stood up to shake his hand and introduce myself, as I thought every professional should do. And as I did that, I put my foot onto the podium to shake his hand and promptly trod on three brand new batons he bought from Guivier's. <laughs> he, he was less than impressed, but it was definitely a, a, a memorable way of meeting him. Um, uh, yeah, and anyway, going into the conducting classes, they were, they were brilliant. I mean, looking back, you know, there was probably about eight or nine of us in the class. Somebody would be conducting. The rest of us would sit at the two pianos and Jonathan would assign us apart. Being a fiddle player, I never got violins and flutes. I would always get transposing instruments, uh, trumpets and clarinets, or horns and cor anglais and violas. And, you know, I'm no pianist, so you just fill in what you can when you can. And, and he was wonderful. He gave us a, a, a sort of a mini pamphlet on how to mark up a score, what pencils to buy, where to buy them from, which, you know, I still have somewhere. Um, and at the end, I conducted, I think it was Elgar's in the South, passed my diploma for that year and thought nothing more of it other than the fact that already what I'd done was start to take a great interest in what these people were doing stood in front of me before I, I could have possibly been accused of being a sort of passenger in a car who was reading a hello magazine or something and not looking out the windows um or looking out the windows, not looking at where we're going. From that moment on, I was sitting in the front seat watching the road and thinking, right, what, what, what is the driver doing? And the same with conductors. Why are you doing that? Why are you, why am I playing for you? But look, you know, this other conductor I played for, I didn't like at all. What, uh, it was already firing the neuro, the, you know, the, the sensors in my brain. And so for that, I'm so glad I did that year's course. Indeed. And just very briefly, what did, in a nutshell, what did Jonathan teach during uh, any given year? He didn't teach a set of repertoire. I don't remember him teaching particularly a style or a stick technique. You know, if you look at a Moosin or, a, or somebody like that, you know, or a Panola, they, they all sort of hold the stick in the same way and their bodies are this. There was none of that. It was very much about score preparation, score learning, tempi. Uh, he would give us practical advice on things like balances. Um, very, very useful in that regard. But I do not remember a single thing him telling me about te stick technique or technique really at all. It was all about the score and all about the music. But that's very interesting because that is, in a way, as if you like, old-fashioned. But also, yes. a few years ago, I had the great privilege to talk to Zubin Mesa and, and Claudio Abado to drop a couple of names about <laughs> the way they'd studied. And they'd been in the same class in Vienna. Um, and they had only basically done 
um, the form of the music. You know, they, yeah. they'd analysed music. They'd done, they'd done, it was rather academic, if you like. I asked them how much physical technique they'd done, how much uh, baton technique and so on. And they both looked at me slightly mystified and said, no, that wasn't part of it at all. It was simply, yeah. you just took another Haydn symphony and worked out where the coda was, where, you know, where the second theme came and how it was all going to work and what the tempi should be. So... I mean, Jonathan Delmar sounds like coming out of something not dissimilar. And of course, his father, Norman Delmar, had been my teacher at yes. the Royal College of Music a few years earlier. Um, and he didn't teach any uh, stick technique at all, but terrifying uh, requirement to learn the score, um, mm. which is one of the hardest things, I think. Uh, but it can be taught, I yes. think, you know, uh, and there are a million ways of doing it. So probably Jonathan was going on from what his father had done, but clearly he didn't do what his father did, which is we would go to his house um, and there was a swimming pool in the house. I think I may have told you this before. Yes. And we would get there at nine o'clock and Norman would be emerging naked from his swimming pool and he would tell us to go and get a cup of coffee and the first thing we saw on Saturday morning was a very substantial man wearing no clothes so I don't know <laughs> what happened at the, uh, at the conservatory. No it didn't. What, what we were, I, I must admit that there was something that you know all of us students would get together and chat and, and we loved Jonathan but we, we loved to wind him up uh, and we did this every week and so Jonathan would sometimes tell us to to uh to prepare a piece of music or he might say bring something of your own the first question he would ask you you would always say so what recordings have you listened to now regardless of whether we'd listened to them or not we would always try and find out whether his father had recorded that piece <laughs> and, and so we would always leave that name till last so you, you could turn around and say well i've listened to james levine with the new york i've listened to bernstein of course Oh, and there's uh, the Norman Del Mar recording with BBC. And then you would go, right, that's enough of that. On, on we go, on with the on with the piece. And um, we used to always try and find a way of, of, um, of winding him up like that, whether he ever realised we were doing it or not. And, and if he did, I'm sorry, Jonathan, but we were just being naughty 20-year-olds. Um, but, yeah, I mean, lovely, lovely man. And uh, somebody I really enjoyed leading for as well uh, in Symphony Orchestra, a great trainer of, of students, and that's going to be something that we must deal with later, training. Mm, yes. Just another question before you leave the conservatoire. Um, clearly you had an absolute ball there and clearly they gave you all sorts of wonderful opportunities um, and you left a very much better educated person than you went in. With retrospect, are the things that you wish they'd taught you that they didn't? Well, I mean, weird practical things like... You know, the, um, the, those days, you know, talking about being self-employed and Schedule D and, and uh, you know, how to get an accountant or that, that only really started happening, sort of professional development happening around the time I left. I made one suggestion to Jackie as head of strings and I've yet to see a music college do this. And if they do, I'm unaware of it. And I, I'm, but, you know, as I said, I was leading the symphony orchestra in my third year. When I got to at the end of my third year, which I'm going to come to in a minute, and, and by then already started working with the CBSO, I went to Jackie at the start of my fourth year and said, can I make a suggestion, please? Is there anybody who wants to, who's a fourth year, 
should now go to the back of the sections in symphony orchestra on every Friday and sit at the back and learn to play at the back of an orchestra because that's where you're going to get your work. I'd quite like to go and sit at the back. And she said, well, I need you at the front, so you're sitting down the front. And that was the end of that. But I do think, you know, if possible, especially if a music college has designs on producing great orchestral players, the elder and better ones who are on the verge of going out and working in the profession should spend at least a concert or two uh, and all of the prep sitting at the back because it's a completely different world. Well, that's fascinating. So all music colleges, please note and change your curriculum <laughs> immediately. Now, how did the transition from music college to playing happen? Because it sounds like the transition happened pretty seamlessly. Uh, well, it was it was very quick and it was very quick, but very detailed and very involved. And it's a story I don't mind telling. Um, I auditioned for the very first set of CBSO string training scheme, um, and which is a scheme that still runs to this day where a student at the conservatoire gets a host player and they sit next to their host for, I think it's a dozen rehearsals. They don't play in concerts, uh, but they get used to what it's like to sit in the CBSO and rehearse. So I auditioned for the very first year of this. Uh, I remember who was on the panel, Lynn Fletcher, the co-leader, David Gregory, Paul Smith, I did my audition, and I, a week after that audition, I was due to play the Sibelius Concerto with the Symphony Orchestra in the graduation concert. So I was, I was in good form, put it that way. And uh, other than one particular bit of the audition where Paul Smith, who later became a good mate of mine, asked me to play Mozart 39 faster and more off the string, which was a complete car crash, and he knew it was going to be, and, and I told him afterwards what a bastard he'd been. Um, other than that, I walked out thinking, well, I've nailed that. So it, I had the rest of the day off. So I went for a beer and I went was, and I was in the pub and somebody came into the pub and said, Jackie Ross is looking for you. You better go back. And I thought, oh God, what have I done? So anyway, what, went back, knocked on her door, walked in. And the first thing she said was, well, you didn't get on the training scheme. And I thought, well, who's played better than I had? I mean, in my arrogant third year way. And she said, oh, no, no, no. Don't worry about that. They've offered you extra work. Um, they want you to go in as a proper pro next week and do, are you free next week? And after, you know, um, college had stopped. So I was offered two weeks work. Um, the first week was Leonard Slatkin, and I've told him this on the podcast, Leonard Slatkin conducting the planets. Second week was Paul Daniel conducting La Mer, which I'd played in youth orchestra already. So that was cool. And then I, had, I was, that was it. There was nothing else in the diary. Um, so I, I went into college the day after that Paul Daniel concert and I was trying some violins out for a mate. And you'll remember that the CBSO offices were next door to the Adrian Bolt Hall, neither of which now exist. And we were stood in the Bolt Hall trying out some violins, me and a mate. He wanted to buy some violins and he wanted to listen to me playing while I listened to him. And Martin Williams, the old orchestral fixer, walked past the door. He said, oh, Mike, um, are you free? And so I went and had a chat with him and he offered me a tour, a two proms and a tour uh, to coming up in four weeks time. And I was free and I thought, brilliant, this fits in just before music college due to start. Uh, so, I went, and then I went home to Kent and two or three days later, I was playing cricket with my brother and his mate and I broke the end of my second finger of my left hand um, trying to catch a ball. And immediately thought, right, what do I do? Um, went to the hospital, had it checked, x-rayed, it was broken. 
they wouldn't splint it up. So my mum and dad and I just got a lollipop stick, splint, splinted them together and thought, right, I'll find out in three weeks time whether I can play the violin or not. I took it out five days before the first rehearsal and I could play ish. And I thought, right, I've got five days. Do I cancel it now and then risk never playing for him again? Or do I fudge it and try and learn to play Prokofiev 5 and Mahler 9 on three and a half fingers? And so I thought, right, me being me, sod it. I'm going to learn that. So I learned that repertoire, Three Screaming Popes by Turnage as well, um, to play it on three fingers, three and a half fingers. Went back, sat at the back next to my desk partner. I told her and I told Paul Smith, who would lead me in the section, and they were fine about it. And I remember doing really well until I tried, I got involved, very involved in the Marla 9 at the proms and tried to do a lot of vibrato with my second finger in the finale and almost screaming in pain because I'd forgotten I'd broken it. Um, and at some point, uh, I think it was queuing up to go on a plane, Paul sidled up to me and he said, look, um, we're going to book you for some stuff in October, but we're also going to turn everything else that you're doing now into a trial for a job. Are you happy with that? And I said, yeah, great, fine. He said, so we'll start moving you around the section and sitting next to people. And uh, and so, yeah, I, the rest of that tour, which was Berlin, Helsinki, Paris, I think I've moved around the section a bit, came back, did some more work. And then I was asked to do a final audition during the week that we were playing Henza's Seventh Symphony with Simon Rattle. And in those days, the final audition had to be on the stage of Symphony Hall and anybody could go and watch it in the orchestra. And they let me off 10 minutes before lunch. So I disappeared out of the rehearsal, tried to get my head around going from Henza to a Mozart violin concerto. <laughs> uh, did my audition and it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't as good, nothing like as good. Afternoon break, Paul Smith came up to me again and said, Simon wants to see you in his room afterwards. So then you're sitting there for the rest of the day thinking, what is he going to say? And I went up to see him and he said, look, I've been told your first audition was brilliant for the training scheme. Let's face it, today wasn't very good, was it? And I said, no, it wasn't. And he said, well, what have you been doing? Have you not been practicing? You've been living it up, you know, playing in the CBSO and all of that. And I said, no, no, I broke my fingers five weeks ago. He said, so you did the tour with a broken finger? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And to which he said, look, it's fine. We were going to give you the job anyway, but I wanted to check what you've been doing since the first audition. Uh, and so we agreed I would go back to college. I would finish my, my fourth year. Uh, I would do as much extra work as I wanted because they, they had quite a few jobs. And I'd join in September 1992, the, the start of the season after I'd finished music college. we ought to get on to what happened about conducting now. Yes. I, I mean, it's a very distinguished and long career as a violinist, but we're here as a mic on the podium. <laughs> That's so, true. Um, so you began to look, uh, there you were in the orchestra, you were earning your living. You were dealing with conductors. I mean, you had Simon Rattle as your music director. Um, tell me about what you were taking from those conductors and at what point it began to occur to you that you might want to revisit your conducting? I, I would often sit in rehearsals and think to myself, this rehearsal's flying by. This is in the early days of playing. This rehearsal's flying by. And then in the following week, you go, 
why is this guy boring me or whatever and and as i said before i was always took an interest in what conductors were doing fascinated by simon fascinated by his rehearsal technique fascinated how he always seemed to finish the day on a highlight we'd always finish with a great exciting piece of music or the end of a movement and you look at your watch and he'd finish with 30 seconds to spare or something like that how does he do that and then others you know you come in and think right what are they doing that i don't you know, I don't understand why you're upsetting everybody. Um, the one, the one I vividly remember is trying to work out why Rozhdzhevsky, Gennady Rozhdzhevsky, what is he doing with his beat that makes it so clear? And already by then, I, things were starting to, I was starting to analyse what the, what they were doing, and asking my friends in the brass, well, we like him in the strings. Why don't you like this conductor? And then they tell me, or asking the wind and. And already things were starting to percolate. I joined the Birmingham Philharmonic, the amateur orchestra as leader, to keep my high playing in, so playing first violins stuff. They gave me the odd concerto. And then their conductor said to me, I've double double booked myself, would you like to conduct a concert? Uh, and I was uh, given a year's notice, and it was Tchaikovsky 6, and I said, yeah, great. And by then I think I was ready to sort of go back into conducting a bit. How did you go back into conducting? I mean, what did you have lessons with anybody? How did you study? Did you just call on what you'd learned in college a few years earlier? A mixture of all of that, but I didn't have any lessons. Um, I knew the program, Brahms Tragic Overture, Poulon Organ Concerto, Chike Six, got scores and started learning them a year out. Uh, started doing some sort of shadow conducting, not in a mirror, just working out what sort of things I might want to see if I was playing. Already the second movement of track six was bothering me because I had to conduct in five or two plus three or whatever it is, three plus two. And it was a mixture of what I remember Jonathan telling us about learning the scores. And then it was a mixture of, frankly, looking at the people I admired um, who were coming in, you know, and thinking, well, how would they conduct it? Uh, and just wing winging it to start with, really. Um, and that, that first concert went well until an upbeat I gave in the finale of Chike 6 and I gave a massive upbeat and nobody came in. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I went round again and they came in the second time and I, my heart leapt into my mouth but remember thinking, right, okay, it wasn't clear then. Couldn't have been clear. That was your fault, not theirs. Right. And already lesson one learned, you know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so still many years in the orchestra. So... Uh, uh, as your conducting develops, um, what was your, did you have a strategy or by what series of accidents did things <laughs> begin to grow? Accidents are particularly right. I did, I did a, few, a few more things with the Birmingham Philharmonic conducting. Uh, they seemed to like what I was doing. We had this day uh, after Simon Rattle left and the orchestra by then were doing family concerts presented by players, people like Pete Hill and Jackie Tyler and Cathar Lidge, of course. And I think it was Pete and Jackie, or maybe all three, said, look, why are we paying all this money for these people to come in and conduct these family concerts? Thousands of pounds who aren't involved, who aren't really interested. Well, maybe there's somebody in the orchestra could do it. So to cut a long story short, we had a day, four of us. We actually drew straws. There were 10 people interested in conducting the CBSA for an hour. We drew straws. I drew the last one out. Ed Smith, the chief executive, said, you can conduct anything you like for an hour as long as it's in the library. And so you've got choice. You either do something the orchestra know, enjoy your hour and, you know, ride the horse around a bit and think what a great time I'm having. 
or you show what you can do. And I, so I went for the latter and I chose Nielsen too, because the orchestra hadn't played it since 1992. I know because I was playing in the orchestra. So this was now seven or eight years later. I thought, well, I haven't played it since then, so they might not remember it particularly. And I did that for an hour. And as a consequence, uh, the orchestra and Ed Smith chose Mark Goodchild and myself, Mark, a bass player, to conduct a concert each. Mark did a family concert. I did some schools concerts. I'm not sure whether Mark enjoyed it and he decided not to pursue it. I wasn't on his concert. I did a rehearsal, but I think I went off ill. Uh, anyway, and then I did the Respiki Pines of Rome, loved it. And I remember then the last concert thinking, well, I might never do this again. So I asked, I looked at my mate Pete Hill on the Timps and just got him to do an even louder crescendo than ever before. And he followed me and did it. And I thought, well, this might be the one time I conduct the CBSO. So sod it, I'm going to have some fun. And then they just kept giving me little little bits more here and there. And I started conducting my own amateur orchestra in 2002. And it, it just started slowly building, really. And then I'm just trying to think of the chronology. But I went for a lesson with Zachary Oromo. I asked him, could I have a conducting lesson? And went to his house in Mosley. And I took, it was a very Zachary program I was going to do with the Birmingham Philharmonic. It was Tchaikovsky, Romeo and Juliet, Sibelius, Violin Concerto, and Berlioz, Symphony Fantasy. And we were there for three hours and didn't stop talking about the music. Um, but he was, seemed very interested. Uh, and then, uh, I can't remember how it worked out, but I, I asked him whether he, he could come and watch me conduct. And he came and watched me do another Birmingham Philharmonic thing. He came and watched me rehearse Walton One for half a morning. And then he, I took him out for dinner and he said, right, you need to go and have some lessons. He said, you're very good, but you need to stop doing this. You need to stop doing that. You need uh, a control out delete. You need <laughs> a restart, a reboot. And so he suggested I try to get on a course with Jorman Panela somewhere, somehow. Wrote me a letter of recommendation. And I went and spent two weeks in Russia studying with him and learning basically that I was, you know, conducting like a speared octopus there are arms and legs going in all directions and when you know there there is such a thing as a technique um and that's sort of how it happened until 2005 well and then what happened in 2005 <laughs> uh, well what happened in 2005 was um we were due to do a world premiere of a piece by richard corston which was for orchestra and pre-recorded orchestra and I was asked to take the, the recording sessions to record the pre-recorded bit. So what happened was, what was due to happen was somebody would sit at the keyboard and when they played middle C, extract five would play through the speakers. And then if they played the B flat below, extract 42 would play at the same time. And so this part was, I think there were 50 extracts of music that were to be played at the same time as the live orchestra in this world premiere. So I'd done, the, I'd recorded the pre-recorded element Eight or nine days before, Zachary went ill, and eventually Stephen Maddock and Richard Causton asked me to take the world premiere. But somebody else did the rest of the concert, I only did the world premiere. And so I had a week to learn this piece, and I'm thinking, well, it's bound to be the same as the extracts. Well, it was nothing like it, uh, full of multi-time signature stuff and tricky to put together. Uh, I remember one morning my missus said to me, how fast is this piece that you're conducting? I said, well, it goes, you know, 150 beats per minute. 
And she said, oh, that's funny, because you sat bolt upright in your sleep last night and did big triangles at that speed and then laid back down and went back to sleep. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> um, I did the world premiere. Next morning, got a phone call from Stephen Maddock, asked me into the office, and he said, would you be interested in being our assistant conductor? Did both roles at once. And I, I was knocked back. I was knocked sideways. I couldn't believe it. Um, and we sat down and we worked it out and how it would work, and it's worked ever since, 15 years. But in the background, how much, how often in a given year were you conducting amateur orchestras and youth orchestras and that sort of thing? Uh, I was conducting, by then I'd, I'd been conducting the Symphony of Birmingham since 2002. We'd already been on tour twice and I was doing three concerts a year with them, plus the odd thing with the Birmingham Philharmonic, plus I think I'd started, a, sort of started with Birmingham schools, doing some things with Birmingham School Symphony Orchestra. So yeah, I, a lot of my time was spent learning scores or out of an e in an evening conducting orchestras. You know, it was it was now more than a hobby. It was it was something I was very serious about. Um, and and to be asked to be assistant was it was very, really important because at the time I I was thinking, do I want to go further up in the you know by then I was a sub principal sitting anywhere between five and leading the section occasionally in the seconds. Now, did I want to become a better fiddle player or was conducting something I might sort of morph into being one? And the, you were our first uh, assistant conductor, weren't you? I don't remember that we had the, the position before that. I, I, don't, I think I was. I think I was. Uh, I, you know, Harold Gray was an was associate conductor, which of course I went on to be, but I don't think there'd been an assistant. And that is how, just in a nutshell, how did you arrange with Stephen Maddock, the chief executive, to divide 100% of your time between fiddle playing and conducting? He, he basically said, you know, I will guarantee you X amount of concerts per year. Um, we talked about fee there for each, for each sort of concerts. You know, it would be a different fee for an outside park state than it would be for a subscription concert. Um, guaranteed one subscription concert a year. We never really talked about me assisting other than the opera each year, which basically worked out that I wouldn't be paid, but I just wouldn't play. So I would spend the, you know, I'd get my violin salary, but I wouldn't be playing. I'd be sitting out and helping and assisting. That was really how it worked until I moved up to associate and they needed an assistant because I'd stopped playing in the orchestra. Um, it was very much word of, the gentleman's word is his bond sort of thing. Occasionally what would happen was, and actually I interviewed somebody the other day and reminded him of when we met, you know, you've, you would have seen this, conductors will turn to the leader and say, I'd love to go and listen to the acoustic, can you stand up and conduct? And normally it would be the leader's job. Well, Lawrence would turn around and say, well, I don't conduct, but that guy there in the seconds does, he'll do it for you. So I would stand up and conduct whatever the, the conductor asked me to do. And it was a Dima Slobodanyuk, we were in Manchester and and he wanted me to do the opening of Nielsen Four. Happily, I'd already conducted that with the Birmingham University Orchestra, so that was fine. But that were the sort of things that would happen at the drop of a hat. Um, just you'd be expected to stand up. And presumably, I mean, it seems to me that the absolutely ideal training for a conductor is to be a player and to emerge, and ideally to be a player for quite a long time, because by the end of the, by the time you've been a player for a long time, you've played a great deal of the repertoire, you've seen all the pluses and minuses and so on. And I presume that you think that your trajectory was retrospectively a very happy one. 
Yeah, I do. Um, I, being an impatient sort, I wonder, you know, maybe I, I could have, we, or we could have found a solution for me to stop playing a few years earlier because I'd stopped playing in 2014. So that was nine years of doing both jobs. Maybe we could have found a way out sooner uh, because by then I was ready, but I would never, ever, ever wish to have gone back and conducted from the start. Those years in this playing in the orchestra were everything to me now as a conductor. Everything is informed ensemble-wise, balance-wise, attitude-wise, the sort of things you can say, the words you can't say because you know you're going to rub somebody up the wrong way. All of that stuff is all based on all of those years. And to now be out there and have that in your backpack or in the back of your brain, you cannot teach that. You know, I can, I, I do teach and I do say to my students, look, you can't say that or you can't voice those concerns. You have to find a better way of saying it. It's so invaluable. Uh, it's the best way of learning. Yes, I, I think we, I could have left sooner, but it took a while for us to work out how. <laughs> and we yes. did eventually. And meanwhile, also this thing that is quite unusual, perhaps these days, to give sort of quite a substantial part of your life to one organisation, rather than flitting off somewhere else after three years or five years. Mm. So, I mean, you really are, I mean, I mean this in the best possible way, as someone who's been at the CBSO himself for 38 years, we are both part of the furniture, I think. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think you're probably right. It's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I mean, I remember joining, when I started as a violinist, somebody saying to me, look, if you want to go, you want to move up the sections, do two or three years here, move to another orchestra, and, and, and then come back later on and you'll be down the front. And I remember thinking, do I want to go through that? I like Birmingham, actually. I quite like, I like the orchestra, I like the hall. You know, maybe, maybe I can fight my way through from within, which I did as a fiddle player to a point. But I, you know, I love the fact, I'm proud of the fact that, you know, I've... They've, they've just done their centenary and I've been involved in the place for 28 years, uh, 29 if you count my year as a freelancer. I love that fact. I, I, I love the history of it. I'm very proud when somebody says, oh, you conduct the CBSO, have you conducted them often? I say, yeah, about 258 times. You know, <laughs> I'm very proud of that fact. And so there you were, uh, having really cut your teeth in Birmingham. How did the sort of guesting elsewhere happen? Where was the first orchestra outside the CBSO professional orchestra to, in, to invite you? Bizarrely, even though I keep all of my stats, uh, I'd have to look it up, Simon. I'm not sure I can remember. What I can say is I can tell you the first time I went abroad, and it was disastrous. Uh, it was with... Uh, the Frankfurt Radio Symphony Orchestra, because we're twins, Birmingham and Frankfurt are twins, and, and Andrea Zeichmann, who is now at the Berlin Phil, was running Frankfurt Radio, and she spoke to Simon and said, who does your family concerts? And he said, well, actually, we've got this guy who's a fiddle player in the orchestra. I went there, and uh, I was just, just trying to please everybody. I wasn't being myself, and I learned that lesson really early on. I, I finished the first day's rehearsal uh, probably too early, Though I didn't feel they needed rehearsing. It was stuff they knew. It was Star Wars and it was standard repertoire stuff. I started rehearsing on the second day and we started with Gershwin's Strike Up the Band. And I realised very early on they didn't know it. 
And so I started really rehearsing them. Anyway, the principal cello said in German across the podium to the concertmaster, the leader, he said in German, he must have slept well. He's actually bothering to rehearse us this morning. Now, I understand a lot more German than I can speak. Uh, now, if he'd said that to me, I'd turn around and say, yes, actually, I slept very, very well in English. But then I decided, you know, right, okay, you want to play games like that. And so it, it got onto my got into my mind, which is, you know, something I'll come back to and answer one of the 10 questions, probably. Um, it just wasn't a very good week. Around this time, I'd also managed to find an agent. So I was starting to do things elsewhere. And word was getting out that I was okay, and I was good. Um, and so I was getting reinvited back to places that did my first BBC Symphony things, BBC Welsh, uh, Ulster Orchestra, went to Argentina on the back of a recommendation from a friend of mine in the CBSO and been back many times ever since. Um, and after that initial Frankfurt thing, I realised you've just got to be yourself. There's enough orchestras out there. If they don't like you, fine. Um, but if they do, they do, and they'll like, ask you back, and don't worry about it. And what was, uh, what did you discover? What were the shocks, if you like, of going to new orchestras? Well, I, mean, I do remember going to Argentina for the first time vividly and meeting their chief executive, who's now become a, a great friend, Eduardo Iduipe. And uh, he sat me down over a coffee beforehand and said, now I'm going to warn you what it's going to be like. He said, this is, you may have rehearsed orchestras before, but you've not rehearsed one in Buenos Aires. I said, okay. He said, if they don't like you within 30 minutes, there will be a riot. <laughs> I'm thinking, right, define riot. Um, and so I, you know, I walk in and get introduced and I just turned the, the face of my watch face down so I couldn't see where, where I was in that magical 30 minutes. Started rehearsing Rimsky-Korsakoff, Capriccio Espanol, got to the end, did some rehearsing, turned the watch over. I'd done 45 minutes and they were in silence. And I thought, oh God, right, I'm, I'm okay. But yeah, then suddenly you'd, somebody would put their hand up and shout from the back of a section and ask you a question or, I mean, it was all very well meant and they love music making. It's all for passion about music making, but that was a shock. Um, it's dealing with the characters. And I realized quite quickly that, you know, the characters that we had in the CBSO were replicated throughout other orchestras. So there would always be somebody who would ask an inane question just so they get their voice heard in a rehearsal. There was always somebody who wanted to pick a fight with you, whether you were involved with them or not. And so, yeah, learning, learning and realising and thinking, right, I know who you are. You're, you're that person or this person. Or, and then just being myself and trying not to be shocked by differences of, when, of attack or when they played or differences of balance in halls and, and just getting my hands dirty. That was how I, I got around it all. And at the CBSO, of course, you'd had to jump in and do all sorts of repertoire. So two questions. Yes. Birmingham is particularly good at doing sort of Bollywood and film evenings <laughs> and all sorts of things that perhaps um, orchestras uh, in better funded countries might not regularly do. Um, uh, first thing, so you're, what first thing is, how about this enormous repertoire that you had to deal with at the CBSO? Um. I loved it. I loved the fact that I was asked to do so many things. When you do a family concert, you know, all of a sudden you've got to do 11 or 12 pieces from different musical genres. And I enjoyed it. Film music nights, I really enjoyed. Um, and taking a pride in making it sound like it did on the movie. And then you'd read on these John Williams fan websites that they thought it was the best performance they'd heard because it sounded just like the movie. And you think, good, I've done the job well there. The Bollywood night was an interesting one. 
because again we wanted it to sound like it did on the original Bollywood films but none of that music existed so the CBSO librarian Tim Poitier arranged them all by ear and it took him a year uh, and he used to come around regularly about once a month and we'd have a meal uh, listen to what he'd done um, probably drink way too much red wine, argue over a chord here and there, say, no, there's a seventh in that chord. No, there's a ninth in that chord. Uh, and and that was, I was really invested in those concerts and those arrangements. But eventually I thought, do you know what? People are calling me the guy who does the Bollywood stuff and they won't ever book me to do a Brahms symphony again. So I sort of, it's the only sort of genre of music I've decided not to conduct again because of that. But not because I don't love it. I absolutely love it. It's fun. But uh, yeah, I, I just thought I was getting a bit pigeonholed. But I, I do love that suddenly being able to stand in front of orchestra and make it, the John Williams stuff especially, it's just such wonderful music to put together. Uh, orchestras love playing it, audiences love listening to it, and I love conducting it. So I don't mind that there are, there are orchestras in the UK. Some people seem, think I do family and school stuff only. Some people think I only do film music stuff. Then I go to the BBC Symphony Orchestra and I can put together the most difficult contemporary music and they think I'm good at that. Uh, I don't mind, don't care. I just need to make sure I've got the right hat on when I walk into the door. You know, am I a film conductor today or am I contemporary music conductor today? Now, coming out of that, you do something that I do as well, which is uh, the CBSO Chorus and London Symphony Chorus are nominally amateur, but mm. but working to a very high standard. And other days I work with professional choirs. You do most of your work with professional orchestras, but you still uh, love, I know, working with really good amateur orchestras. Why is that? And what's the difference? Why is that refreshing um, as part of your portfolio? I conduct two now and uh, amateur orchestras and I, and I won't take on any more. One of them is at, totally out of loyalty. Uh, they were the first people to give me a real break, which is the Symphony of Birmingham. And um, we've been on tour together six or seven times. And I love working with them. And they basically let me conduct what I want, which means I can try things out on them before I take it to CBSO or whatever. The other one is a, an orchestra I've con been conducting for the last five or six years in London. Uh, called the Corinthian Chamber Orchestra. And the reason why I keep going back to them is that similarly, they let me program what I want, which means I can program stuff I re need to relearn or stuff I need to learn afresh or new. But they are head and shoulders, the best amateur orchestra I've ever heard. If I could, if I tell you the program that, that we should be doing in February 2021, and I suspect we won't because of COVID, I don't know any other amateur orchestra, and I know that they'd nail this program, would do the following program, the Lutoslavsky Concerto for Orchestra, Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on the Theme of Paganini, and then the Interval, and then the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. Now, that's a, bloody, that's a bloody hard program, but I know they'd nail it. That's how good they are. Um, I've done Mahler 10 with them, which, you know, I, I have done with other amateur orchestras. I mean, the, the last concert I did with them, or one of the last concerts, the soloist pulled out. And because the principal second violin who basically runs the orchestra is also Nicola Benedetti's agent, Nicola Benedetti came and played the Tchaikovsky with us on no <laughs> rehearsal. And she was amazed at how good they were. How utterly every soloist who's ever worked with the orchestra just walk away going, how good are this lot? You know, and yeah. so, yeah, I don't mind working with them. I love it. I absolutely love it. Now... There's one thing that you haven't done yet. Would you like to have the 
irksome responsibilities of being chief conductor somewhere one day? Oh, I'd love to. I really would. I'd love to be able to take an orchestra and then mould it and shape it. And, and, and even things that I know some conductors don't like, you know, hiring and auditions and all. I'd, lo I'd love to do that. Um, I think it would have to be the right one. I, I, I've been close a couple of times. But, and in hindsight, I've been rather glad I didn't get the job. But yeah, I think I, I, I would love it. Absolutely love it. And what would you, what would your special trademarks be? I mean, I know we, we don't have an orchestra in front of us and we don't know what its strengths and weaknesses are, but what would your priorities for your own orchestra be? I personally have two big things that I work on more than anything else. It's ensemble and that ensemble being mainly built on internal listening within the orchestra and a hierarchy of listening in the orchestra. I have a set way that I get asked to ask orchestras to listen to each other. And very rarely do I ever have to spell it out. I, I will tell you a story. I did a come and play day with a, a professional orchestra. I won't say any more than that, uh, where half two thirds of the orchestra were amateurs and the other third were professionals. And at some point early in the rehearsal, I pointed out my hierarchy of listening, who basically within the orchestra is conducting at any one moment and how that hierarchy works. At the break, the, the chairman of the Players Committee knocked on the door, came in, introduced herself, as she always does, and I said how lovely it was to see her again. And she said to me, do you know that hierarchy of listening you've just said? Is there any chance when you come back and conduct the main orchestra that you could tell your, the main orchestra your hierarchy of listening? I said, no, then kill me. She said, well, some people need to hear it again. So ensemble, I think orchestras, the sound of an orchestra is often fixed when the orchestra's playing together. An ensemble and listening are, the, to me, the most important things. And, and also, I'm, I'm rather hot on rhythm as well. You'd think as a string player, I'd be obsessed with Boeings, and I'm not. Never have been. Uh, so, yeah, that, those, they're the big things for me. Rhythm, on, ensemble, and how it's done. And, and it's done from within, not necessarily from watching my beat, which is a phrase we all heard from when we were kids, and I'm not sure it ever... It, of course, there are times you have to watch a conductor's beat for cello renders and starting and stopping, but most of the time, you're just... As a conductor, you should be a balance engineer and you should be a structural engineer and you shouldn't just be a metronome. Um, they should, that should all be done from within. And whenever I've got it to work, it works wonderfully. So that's what I would concentrate on. Now, you'll have seen a lot of very... Several very wonderful chief conductors at the CBSO mm. um, and that isn't really my question my question <laughs> is um, oh, they all did the job of chief conductor in a very different way and in all the cases it was successful yeah if you were chief conductor somewhere what do you think do, do you think the music director has responsibilities outside his or her own concerts and own programming I think they do, but I do think that it completely depends on where in the world you're doing it. So, you know, if I happened to get a job in America, you were expected to be out there um, meeting local philanthropists, if that's the right word. Um, and less so in other places where the public, you know, Finland or Germany, where it's publicly funded a bit more and you can just, you know, almost just get on with doing that role happily go and do it because I've done enough outreach education work as a player uh, and also enough, enough conducting of, of family um, schools 
concerts for people with uh, special needs and, and different needs, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing I think is, is so important to the community. So, yeah, I think you've got to get out there and do it. You have to. It's part of your, your role. It's part of everybody's role as a musician. Mike, we have something in common. Both of us have stepped in for Andrus Nelson's at the last minute. Um, I very memorably was in my jeans waiting to listen to a choir and orchestra concert in Germany at one minute to eight when Andrus claimed to be having a heart attack, was removed, <laughs> taken to hospital, and I went on in my jeans and conducted a program of anything that was in the lorry at the time that I knew. <laughs> um, the same has happened to you, I think. Uh, it's true, but this time he wasn't, he wasn't having a heart attack. This time we were on a long tour, 17 concert tour of, of, of Europe, and uh, I'd actually had lunch with him that day in Dortmund, because, you know, by then I was associate conductor. We were very good friends. Uh, we'd had lunch together. And then it was a few hours to kill. So we were now 13 days, 13 concerts into, and my con my suitcase needed repacking. I thought, right, an afternoon in the room. Got dressed for the concert, and I got in the lift at the hotel in Dortmund to walk to the venue, and the phone rang, and it was Stephen Maddock, um, the chief executive, who was on the tour. So I'm thinking, well, why is he ringing me up? He said, um, where are you? I said, I'm just walking to the hall. Basically, what had happened was that Andrus's young daughter, and she was only a baby in arms, maybe a year or 18 months old, was rushed to hospital with an internal problem with her digestive system. And Andrus, of course, was, was going to go home, back to Latvia, and, and be there for uh, his wife and his daughter. And Stephen said, you know, if we asked you to conduct the last three concerts, would you and could you? And I said, well... Yes, I would, but I'd need the scores to be able to make sure I could. I walked to the hall in Dortmund. As I got to the hall, four members of the CBSO management walked out of the back door, the artist door, and walked towards me, which is never a good sign. Is it? <laughs> when you, they're walking towards you and I'm thinking, oh God, what's happened now? And they said, right, he's gone now. He's gone. He's, he's got in the limo and he's gone. He's, he's flying home tonight. You're on now, this evening. So... What, that evening, I think we had half an hour's seating rehearsal for C Interludes, which I'd rehearsed but never performed. Beethoven's fourth piano concerto, which I'd performed but never with that pianist. And then Sibelius II, which we all knew backwards. And it was great. I mean, it was wonderful. The problem that was looming was the third of these three concerts, to, to make sure that I'm right, which was the last concert of the tour at Baden-Baden. And the whole first half was to be with Jonas Kaufmann. Now, I'd never obviously conducted Jonas Kaufmann before. I didn't know the repertoire, I'd never conducted it, but I had two days to learn it, which was fine. And to cut a very long story short, he was lovely in the rehearsals, absolutely lovely. He marked his way through the Mahler, Kindertoten Leader and the Strauss songs. He, you know, it was purely for my benefit and he was wonderful. In the concert, he sang the, the first of the Kindertoten Leader by Mahler. We stopped, it was divine. And this voice chimed out from the hall, an audience member. Again, I understood more German than I can speak. 
This ba person basically said, I've paid a lot of money, Mr. Kaufman, to come on and watch you sing. Can you please take two steps forward so I can see you? And Jonas Kaufman was obviously put out by this and he shot me a glance and then he took two steps forward, then came back to where he was and then walked out the front, right out to the front and said in German, and again, you know, I understood the gist of it. He said, look, this seems, these are extraordinary circumstances. This is a conductor we've only met today. The conductor and I need to see each other as well as the concertmaster. So we're stood in this triangle here. He said, but also can I remind you that you've paid a lot of money to hear me sing, not see me sing. And then went back to where he was stood. At this point, I realized that whatever I did as a conductor for the rest of that concert wouldn't matter because all anybody talk about was this weird interjection. So all of my nerves just disappeared. But I remember stood there shaking uh, at the start of the concert and especially when this contretemps was going on. Um, but yeah, absolutely amazing. You know, weirdly, I put my baton. Oh, I know why. I'd conducted the offstage brass in Tristan and Isolde at the start of the tour. So my baton was in my violin case. And then at the end of the tour, I needed it. And the only thing I had to get used to was what Andrus's scribblings in the score were compared to what I would scribble. Um, but yeah, amazing times. And that's why the CBSO ended up, when I stopped playing, they ended up booking assistant conductors, thinking, well, it doesn't have to be Andrus, it could be whoever we tour with. If there's a problem, we're going to need somebody there, which is why they, they now take somebody on every tour, um, which I think is a good thing. Indeed. Mm. And of course, because your time as assistant uh, conductor was so successful, now it's part of the furniture and we, we've always had one now and there have been three or four since your time. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mike, this has been a huge, huge pleasure. I know that we're supposed to end these amazing interviews with 10 questions. I think <laughs> when you asked these questions of me, I gave very boring answers. So I'm hoping you're going to be much more interested, <laughs> interesting than I am. Um, so number one, what sound or noise do you love and what sound of noise do you hate? Um, I will preface this by saying I did answer these in episode one, the taster episode, but since then my answers have changed for quite a few of these because I've given them more thought. Um, as it happens, the sound I love is still the same answer and it's a sound I will always love. And I think you do as well. It's the sound of a village cricket match. I love oh. the fact that, yeah, you turn up there and there's a burble of applause and there's the, the odd hours zat and there's a smack of the ball on the bat. I love that noise. Uh, I've played a lot of village cricket and love it, but that to just sit there and, you know, I, I often, if I'm driving home and I see a game of cricket, I'll stop the car and get out just to be able to watch a couple of overs and see what's going on. That's the sound I love. The sound I hate, um, I, in episode one, I said it was the word maestro. Frankly, I don't, if somebody called me maestro now, it means that I'm working. So I don't, I don't care if people call me maestro. <laughs> My, my pet peeve, sound-wise, is the word like used in sentences when it doesn't mean like. Do you, yeah. do you know what I mean? Uh, I know what you mean, but it, now I know that you're a father with children of a particular <laughs> age. <laughs> exactly that. Um, I'm evil. At the dining table, I will sit there and count out loud if they start doing it, the times that they use it inappropriately. And then they get, they get a minus one off if they use the word like in the proper way. But yeah, it drives me insane. What's worse is I'm now seeing people typing it 
online or on tweets and you think really <laughs> how has it appeared in there so almond art and even you know i can cope with but like no it drives me insane i i get really angry so that's my answer to that so question three if you had like 24 hours free <laughs> what would you spend it doing <laughs> um sadly we're not gone there this year but for the last oh i don't know seven or eight years we've been to abruzzo in italy I say we, it's my family, my wife and my two daughters, my mum and dad and my mother-in-law. And we drive there in two cars and we've had the same villa now for three or four years. A day there. Um, I love the outlook. I love the view across to the Grand Sasa Mountains. You know, lazy day, in and out the pool, uh, long, lazy, liquid lunch. And then get drive down the road and have a, a local Abruzzan meal either pizza in the one restaurant or uh, sort of chunks of local meat. Uh, they do something called a rostaccini, which is little bits of mutton barbecued on sticks, um, which are just divine. Uh, and then back for a, you know, uh, a nightcap. That would be the perfect day for me. Just uh, when the world seems to have evaporated away and you're just staring at mountains at a pool and having, having fun and a laugh and there's no time pressure. That's perfect. I'm going to do question 3A. We're in the middle of the COVID time. What have you learned about yourself uh, during the last six months? Oh, um, I've learned that I'm deadline dominated, even if that deadline is a long way away. So what the listener can't see is that I'm sitting at my desk and I have three desks, one of which is usually filled with piles of scores, the programmes that I'm about to conduct. And they will go on piles of scores for nine to 12 months in, in, in advance. And I will have another pile of scores I must learn and look at. And I've learned that I'm deadline. A deadline is the way I work. Some conductors, I'm sure, have sat down and thought, oh, right, this is perfect. I can now learn the symphonies of Carl Nielsen, or I can learn the Brooklyn symphonies I don't know, or I can learn this opera or that ballet. It's not me. Oh, yeah, I want to learn all of that stuff, but... I need somebody to tell me that I'm going to be doing it to do it. Um, and so doing the podcast gave me the deadlines. So I've got, I've got interviews. I then got to edit it and get it out. And, and those were the deadlines that drove me through the time. I think that's what I've learned through this. Brilliant. Yeah. So I'm now taking your question slightly out of uh, order because coming from that, who is your favorite conductor who is alive today? Who huh. might be sitting, might be sitting somewhere, wondering if he or she is ever going to work again. Um, I would stick to the the three answers that I gave before, but give slightly more reasoning for that. I think the CBSO have been incredible at choosing their music directors. I, I've never played for Mirga, which is why I can't put Mirga on on the list because I've never played for it and I've only seen a rehearsal for a grand total of about 15 minutes. So, you know, I'd si I joined uh, when Simon Rattle was there. He's incredible rehearser. The planning, he can take a piece apart like a jigsaw puzzle and put it back so that you, the picture's even clearer. His pacing of rehearsals, his programming. Um, so uh, yeah, he was somebody when I first started conducting, I thought I've got to be like Simon. Well, you know, Try as hard as you can. You can't be, but it's a great role model to have. Zachary, the clearest beat I have ever seen, played for, 
and also the clearest at telling you what the next tempo is, which is one of the hardest things, as you'll know, Simon, when there's a tempo change and there's no relation mathematically, he was the business at that and still is. And I, I, I loved his sense of humour. I'm not sure many people got it. I loved his sense of humour. Um, and then Andrus, you know, with all of the things that you talk about with organisation and what you think the conductor should be, he would use phrases in rehearsals that inspired us all, made us laugh. Uh, the first tour we did with him, we did seven Chike fives. They were all different. They were all so spontaneous. Some of them weren't even by Tchaikovsky. I don't know who they were by, but they were just brilliant. Um, and he got me, around that time I'd been learning with Pamela, he got me to stop thinking about what, what it looked like and start thinking about what it should feel like and what the music, get the music out there at all costs. Doesn't matter what, you know, if that beat works, use it even if it isn't in the training manual. So I'm going to stick with those three because I don't think I could have had any better training in conducting by watching than those three. How splendid. What about then uh, listening to recordings or going to concerts in the past, conductors of yesteryear? I, I, don't, I didn't really go to concerts in the past, which is sad, uh, but I just didn't. Um, that's something from my early life I wished I'd done more of, but there weren't any opportunities where I lived. So, Harnham Court, love Harnham Court. I love the clarity of musical thought. I love the sound, especially in things like Beethoven. Incredible sound. He gets the instruments. Also, what I love is his phrases he uses in rehearsals. He's not afraid to make, to say something outrageous. He's not afraid to say something that's frankly weird to get his point across, which also links into the other person who, and it's going to annoy some, because I, I still get tweets now saying, is every answer to that question going to be Carlos Kleiber? Well, today it still is. He was another one who you would use a turn of phrase to make an orchestra laugh or to make them sit up in their chair, to make them play better, and frankly, a beat to die for and clarity of, you know, of how he conducted. So those would be my two. One really, I love listening to Harlan Cause recordings, and I love watching Kleiber. Now, when it comes to conducting yourself, what's the hardest piece that you've ever done? And why was it hard? Well, uh, again, I'm not changing the answer, but it's World's Bliss by Peter Maxwell Davis. Um, a little bit of context. I saw Simon Rattle backstage at Symphony Hall. We shared a day's work with the CBSO. I was conducting and playing for him, and he was just conducting. Sadly, he wasn't playing for me. But we, we, we met backstage, and he asked me what was coming up. And I told him that I was doing World's Bliss with the BBC Symphony in about three or four weeks' time. It's one of the very few times I've ever seen Simon Rattle take, almost take a step backwards. And he went, you're conducting World's Bliss. Well, good luck with that. And I'm, <laughs> I'd literally just started marking up the score. I remember thinking, OK, right. Uh, it took almost a mathematical brain to work out how to rehearse it so that the orchestra didn't sit there in for... 50 minutes at a time not doing anything so I came up with a schedule very detailed schedule on how to break it down we had two days of rehearsal first day was on my own the second day Max was there and afterwards I I was so exhausted after rehearsing that and the, the first half of the concert I went for a beer to the local pub near uh near Maida Vale and there was Max with a couple of people and we sat down and he said to me, he said, well, of course, the problem with this piece is that you need a conductor with the sort of skills of a boules or a rattle to make it work. And I remember thinking, yeah, you're really helping me here, aren't you? <laughs> um, 
uh, it's 40 minutes of non-stop difficult, either difficult, slow, or incredibly complex time signatures. I got to the end. I was so relieved that uh, it was only on the fourth time I walked back to the podium, I remembered I really ought to give Max a bow. Um, <laughs> uh, I was so embarrassed having not given him a, given him a bow before then. Um, but yeah, that piece was just full on for the all the way through not just the rehearsals the concert as well just so hard and it's the only piece on these podcasts that is mentioned by other conductors both Ruman Gamba and Leonard Slatkin both say world's bliss they've both done it as well 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 yeah now when it comes to going abroad which of course for the time being we're not doing very much what item would you not leave home without I must let the listeners know that since about, well, I can't remember, well, you were the first person I ever interviewed, Simon, even though you were episode nine, you were the first one. Um, so you were allowed to say phone, baton, passport, or score. Well, about eight episodes in, I banned those answers because I was getting the same answers all the time. My answer's a bit weird. I've got a book of Daily Telegraph cryptic crosswords, which I've taken with me on every foreign trip, be it a holiday, or working abroad, or on a tour, for years and years and years. I'm about halfway through. So when my phone has died, when there is no internet signal, when there is no, I, I've got a pen and a cryptic crossword book, and it saved me on many an occasion. Uh, wouldn't be without it. Excellent. What is the one thing you would change about the life of being a conductor? I alluded to it earlier, it is players' attitudes towards conductors. I will hold my hands up and say that, you know, probably for the first 10 years of my time as a player, I was probably a shit to conductors. And if you were one of those conductors, I wholeheartedly apologise. Some people just seem to want to pick a fight. And why? You know, you're, you, we're all there to make music together. Um, I can't be making your life that much of a misery. I had an experience at the end of the last calendar year, at the end of 2019, with an orchestra that will remain anonymous or nameless, where basically it was one person, but with a, another guy in cahoots, just wanted a fight from 20 minutes into the first rehearsal. I actually mentioned this to another conductor and they said, oh yeah, when I worked there and they used to work there regularly, uh, this conductor would be physically sick because they were worried about having to cope with these people and this fight every rehearsal it doesn't do anything it doesn't achieve anything i suspect it was covering up for the fact that you know around them they weren't getting on with each other so the best way of deflecting that was to have a go at the conductor it's needless it's pointless and yeah i it's a benefit the bet for the benefit of hindsight and also from personal experience just there's no need for it it's point it's horrible indeed yeah so if you were feeling very negative about all that, what profession <laughs> other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, in a fantasy world, I wished I'd been a cricketer, but I wasn't good enough and I was asthmatic as a kid. And my trial for Kent was the same day as a youth orchestra rehearsal. And I was worried about being late for the youth orchestra. So therefore, uh, bowled terribly. That's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. Uh, and so in the real world, I think I, I love architecture and I love buildings and I, I would love to be involved in that. It's similar to music making and a big piece of music. You're looking at the overall architecture, but you're also looking at things like, 
you know, railings on stairs and plug sockets here and uh, how the drainage system works and all of it's the minutiae within the bigger picture. And I, th I would love to have done something in architecture, I think, whilst still bowling badly <laughs> in the meantime as a cricketer. Very good. Now, so many of these questions have a very different feel to them. Uh, because of the time we're living through. So the, your final question and the end of our chat is, if the world were to end tonight, and it seems to me quite often it is about to end, <laughs> what would your choice of final meal and drink be? Um, I'm going to take, if you know, social distancing were allowed, uh, I would take my family and friends to a restaurant in Buenos Aires, uh, and I would personally make sure I had an empanada to start with, with a Quilmes beer, which is an Argentinian beer, which I love. I would have a bifa de lomo um, with garlic chips and a bottle of Malbec red wine. The pudding would be something with dulce de leche in it, and I would finish the night off with a bourbon or two. Um, and I think I'd be pretty happy and completely stuffed. Um, that would just suit me fine. <laughs> Very good. Mike, your uh, mic on the podium has been a real success. I think you've been visited by, what is it, 10,000 people by now? That's right, yes, it has, yeah. Um, and I think for all the fans of the series, it'll just be fascinating to see the tables turned. I feel very privileged to have been the person who was allowed to turn the tables. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. And uh, let's hope we get back to work soon. I hope to see you very soon. Uh, and thank you for taking on my role. Um, you did it wonderfully, as I knew you would, because you've done it for the Berlin Phil and you've done it elsewhere. Uh, it was a real pleasure. Thank you, Simon. You're welcome. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. And thank you to Simon Halsey for agreeing to interview me and doing such a splendid job. Next time, I chat with a conductor who can be described as a pioneer in the world of conducting. Along with running a mentoring programme since 2003, she has held title positions in the United States, United Kingdom, Brazil and Austria. Until then, bye-bye!